Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. Our guest this week is my good friend, Suzanne Wainwright-Evans, also known by many as the Bug Lady. She is an ornamental entomologist specializing in integrated pest management. Suzanne has been involved in the green industry for more than 25 years with a primary focus on biological control and using pesticides properly. She is a graduate of the University of Florida with degrees in both entomology and environmental horticulture. She has worked throughout the United States and internationally consulting to greenhouses, nurseries, landscapers, and interior scape companies. She is the owner of Bug Lady Consulting, now in business for over 21 years. Now on to the show. Hey, Suzanne, welcome back to the show. Hey, I'm super excited to be here. I love chatting with you and I love all your peeps. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited too. And I think we have some wonderful topics to go over for today. Uh, starting off with talking about uh, some new products and innovations that have happened in biocontrols uh, since the last time you were on the show. Yeah, there's some really new exciting things happening and it's not often that we get new products in biocontrol because the biocontrol industry, and right now we're gonna talk more about macro biocontrols, which are your mites, insects, and nematodes. Uh, they are heavily regulated by the USDA. You cannot just rear bugs and ship them around. Um, so we typically don't get actually new species of beneficials, which you know we don't have any new beneficials at this time, but what we have is new technologies for the current beneficials that we have. And there's this new product um, for applying nematodes, which I'm super excited about. It's, it's still really, really, really new. Um, it's actually a product out of Germany and the manufacturer is a company called E-Nema. Um, don't say that too fast because you'll say the wrong word. Um, but E-Nema um, has been making nematodes in Germany for quite a long time. And they were trying to find a new application methods for nematodes. Right now, when we apply nematodes, we generally drench them or sprinch them across the soil surface. Um, and then they settle into that top portion of the soil. And they're really good right now for especially uh, fungus net larvae, Western flower thrips, onion thrips, pupa, which are down in the soil, which is fine because those are right on the top of the surface there. The question is, how do we manage pests that are lower in the pot? And what they have come up with is basically a slow-release nematode system. Um, it actually, when you look at the product, um, it looks like small tapioca pearls that you've soaked in water overnight. It's these little balls, and they're kind of spongy when you touch them. Um, but in each one of these small balls, there's about 1,600 nematodes. And the, the idea is you take this product, and then you pre-incorporate it into your media so that then you'll have nematodes completely homogeneously mixed through your soil and it can stand up to the soil mixing process. And then over a series of several weeks, you have nematodes slowly releasing out all the way through your media so that again, you have better distribution of nematodes as well as uh, uh, higher numbers in the soil because of the ability to slow release and to come out of these 
uh, little pearls that they're in. And the pearls are very safe. It's not any crazy chemicals that you're going to find. They're basically made of water, sunflower oil. There's some calcium chloride, emulsifier, um, and there's a sodium alginate in there. So, you know, they're all things that, that are not going to be toxic to your soil. And it's, it's a really interesting novel way uh, to apply nematodes. Again, it's brand new to the market. Um, the distributor for them is going to be BioB, uh, which many people already know because BioB is an, a, a large uh, insectary in Israel, but they also sell here into the United States. And so, again, they're going to be uh, distributing this product. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now on the website here. They do like look like little tapioca pearls. Um, this would be nice for reasons of if you had a pot with drain holes on the bottom, I assume you're more likely to get any fungus gnat larvae that are in, you know, infecting those areas. Is that kind of what you're, That's, you're thinking? One of the things I'm looking, I think it will be interesting to go back and please do not run out people and say nematodes control root aphids. In a Petri dish, we know nematodes can get inside of a root aphid, but they've never worked in a growing situation where you just apply nematodes and the nematodes infect the root aphids and control them, mainly because your root aphids are too deep into the pot because, again, most nematode drenches are right on the soil surface. I think it will be interesting to look at if incorporating nematodes can help with suppression of root aphids. I'm not saying it's going to work, but these are the things we have to trial, look at, and test. And maybe even, you know, a combo program of an entomal pathogen pre-incorporated with, you know, the nematodes to see if we can, you know, go after them for multiple approaches. So, again, this is brand new. We still have to do a lot of testing. Um, the other thing that I'm interested in about this is for the small home grow, because if you um, – most nematodes come in larger packaging, and once you open the package, you really have to use all of it. Uh, you don't want to store nematodes. If these would come in a cup and could be stored in the refrigerator for, you know, a several-week period, which from my understanding from them, they can be, you could open your container, and again, if you only have three or four plants and you wanted to apply nematodes to the soil surface or even dibble holes in your soil surface, drop some of these in there and cover them, you could do multiple of applications of nematodes through the crop cycle where traditionally when you buy the nematodes you have to buy them and apply them and it can get very expensive to buy these large packagings of nematodes and use them all up this way you could do small applications of them because there is research done showing that low dose regular applications of nematodes work better on fungus nets than coming in really heavy and then going without an application and going in really heavy slow low doses are better can you back up a moment and talk about uh what what specific nematodes one would want to apply i mean i think you're talking about sf nematodes here but um if you could kind of explain that and i'm not even trying to pronounce them i'll let you handle the pronunciations but i, I don't want people <laughs> to think that like they can just go online and google nematodes and think that they're going to have you know, it, it, I know it's specific to a given pest, so. Well, and, and, and there is some crossover. 
So the main three nematodes that we work with currently in the U.S. are Cyanoma feltiae, and that's, I mean, that's the majority of the market, mainly because in research, it has shown that performs best for fungus net management and for Western flower thrips pupa in the soil. There's also a bacteriophora, which um, is also used, but a much smaller percent, and then carpocapsae. Bacteria 4 is typically used more for beetle grubs, but bacteria 4 still can infect like fly larvae, but it's not the best at it. And carpocapsae is used a bit more for things like cutworms. Um, it also can work on uh, flea larvae in the soil outside. But that doesn't mean that other nematodes, there's lots of crossover, but the research basically picks the one that works the best. Again, it's not like bacteria for and carpocapsae won't do anything for fungus net management. It's just Feltier has been the best. And there really hasn't um, been a lot of looking at the different species and nematodes for potential for root aphid because, again, of the problem, root aphids go really deep down on the pot and the nematodes just aren't reaching down to where the nematodes are when they're just top dressed. So this new form of application could potentially, uh, if research plays out, show better root aphid suppression possibly? Yes, and I still think, I still think you're gonna need to do it in conjunction with, again, a microbial product, a Bavaria, Isaria, something along those lines. But since we don't have, you know, a magic bullet at this point for root aphids, we need to use all the tools possible. And this may have potential for that. Again, the product is, is they just basically launched this product at the Cultivate show uh, two weeks ago. So it's going to be a while before we have some U.S. trials done. Um, I do know um, the uh, research entomologist, Dr. Stephen Authors, who's a good friend of mine, who works at uh, BioB, is doing trials with this product. Um, so we should be hearing some stuff later this year, potentially. Um, but I definitely think it's something worth looking at and testing. Pricing, I am sure this is going to be more expensive than just regular conventional nematodes, but if it's a situation where you can incorporate this and then you don't have to apply again for X amount of weeks where you're normally applying nematodes weekly, it could be a labor cost savings, but that only comes in if you're a larger grower or in a larger facility. Again, if you're a home grow four or five plants, it's not going to be you know, that much of a cost savings because your labor is not that intensive. Yeah. I look forward to learning more about this. That's really exciting. Um, yeah. What? Oh, and, and the, they, the, you, most of the product I believe right now is sending to a Feltier, but they do have the potential to do a bacteria for, or carpocapsae in this technology too. Cool. Cool. Well, I look forward to seeing, uh, seeing where that goes here in the U S as it becomes more available. Yeah, me too. Uh, all right, so what else is going on in the biocontrol world? So if any of you have spent time with me over the last bajillion years, my favorite predatory mite of all time is Persimilis. I love Persimilis. I, if I was a tattoo person, I would have a Persimilis on me, but I'm a needle <laughs> weenie, so that's not going to happen. 
So um, well, that's why I keep telling, uh, for those of you that know Kelly Vance at Beneficial Insector, you know, he's got like an insect sleeve. I keep telling him those are my tattoos on his body because I just, well, I, could, I, too, uh, I struggled getting my ears pierced a second time and now I completely regret it because I'm just such, I just don't do needles. But Persimilis is absolutely amazing. For those that aren't familiar, Phytocelius persimilis is a predatory mite. It's a tropical species, and what it's known for is feeding on two-spot spider mite. It's really got one job, and that's what it does. So um, it's been used really heavily in greenhouse vegetable production through the decades. It's been used very heavily in strawberry production, especially in California. Um, there's a lot of persimilis production in California for that very reason to meet the demands of the uh, strawberry producers out there. But several decades ago, um, that's, and this was the first commercial beneficial I worked with in the 90s, um, was Persimilis and using it in tropical foliage for spider mite management. It worked amazing. Um, you put it out, if there's spider mite eggs, immatures, or adults, it eats them. But if there's no food source, they die. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. I don't know if that's the right wording, but if you are, let's say, a landscape kind of person or a vegetable producer, you kind of want your predators to hang around and and have them on the plants. If you are growing for ornamental purposes, you're good with your beneficials dying because you do not want to send any plants to market with anything moving on them. So the palm growers are okay with all the beneficials dying off because even though they're beneficials, most people cannot determine if something is a beneficial, a pest, or indifferent, which most things you see are completely indifferent and benign um, to, uh, from an agricultural context. Um, so you would release them, they'd pass away of starvation because they'd everything up. So typically on a persimilis program, you're releasing about every two weeks. Well, BioB in Israel um, has come up with a new rearing system for them. Normally, how you rear persimilis is you have to grow a ton of spider mites. And then once you have a ton of spider mites, then you go sprinkle some persimilis out there. And then the persimilis multiply and multiply and multiply. And then when your whole population is almost persimilis, you harvest them, you put them in bottles. If you're a poor spider mite that survived, and you're in that bottle with 10,000 persimilis, you're not even going to make it very long because they're going to eat you up. And you get the product and then you release it. What BioB has discovered is that they can raise these predatory mites on essentially um, the egg of another mite species called Carphoglyphus, um, and it can reproduce off of it. So basically, instead of having to raise all these spider mites, which have to be raised on plant material, the carpoglyphus, they don't have to raise on plant material. They harvest their eggs, and then basically the eggs are like little protein bars, and they just feed them to the persimilis. So it's a, a more efficient way of raising them. And with that technology, what they're able to do is then take sachets, which Sachets that are used for other mite systems are very different than these. I'll talk about that in a second. But they put these carpoglyphus eggs um, or dead mite eggs in a sachet. And so basically, you've just set up a 
a sachet with a pile of protein bars in there. You put some persimilis in there, and then they've got two kinds of persimilis. They have what's called the, the speed release product, which they say um, if you just put that out, it just has persimilis in there. In about five days, all the persimilis climb out. So basically, it, it, it's a, a speed, speedy release to get them on. But if you get the, what they call the, uh, what the, the brand is Percy Plus. But if you get the classic Percy Plus sachets, right now, they think one of those sachets will release about 300 mites, oh, up to about 12 days. So you're getting almost two weeks of release. Those of you that are used to working with cucumeris and Swirsky sachet, you know, those last four to six weeks. That's because in those, you actually have a breeding system. You've got mites in there that are breeding, that are feeding on fungus, that's growing on brands, so it's self-sustaining. In these systems, they just put the, the dead uh, mite eggs in there, and so the, there's no mites to be breeding in there. So when they run out of the mite eggs, your breeding system's over, but it still can give you two weeks of release. And this can be important for crops that you do not want carrier on. And, you know, cannabis is one. Um, anything that's got those trichomes, you don't want to see that carrier stuck all over the plant. And even, you know, like a petunia and calabarcoa crops, you know, things like that, um, where you have the heavy trichomes on them, and if those are going to go to retail, you don't want to see carrier sprinkled all over it. So this is going to give you that option um, for that. Now, this Persimilis, you can buy in bottle form too, not just the sachets. But when you open the bottle and you look in, you're going to be like, what? These aren't Persimilis. And if you've attended in my workshops, I've said it a million times, you cannot use color solely as identification because we have different color morphs. Um, insects and mites, colors can be slightly different depending on their food source. And this Percy Plus, when it's reared on these mite eggs, the persimilis are clear. They're almost like a milky, creamy color. They are not red. And if you ask anybody what colors are persimilis, they're going to be like, oh, they're bright reddish orange. When they're red on this, fed on this different diet, they look completely different. They're the first time I saw them, it was like totally freaky um, because it's just I'm so not used to seeing persimilis like transparent creamy color what's interesting though is once they start to feed on spider mites then they'll turn their red color so there is a little potential here that these could be a diagnostic slash scouting tool that if you put out all these clear colored mites um and then you start seeing them turning red they're finding spider mites somewhere in your crop um so beware that there, there's a lot you have to understand about using the Percy plus persimilis over conventional persimilis. The other thing you have to be aware of is when you buy conventional persimilis, which again, amazing products out there, um, when you buy them and they're in the bottle, there has been no food in there when you buy the red traditional persimilis. So when you release them, they are hungry. It's like if you know you were locked in a room for two days fasting, when you get out, man, you're gonna be ready to eat. So when you release the traditional red persimilis, and I watched this, I, I, I'm sure some of you heard me talk about I over my COVID vacation I had for a year sitting at home, I raised a lot of spider mites. And when I released the traditional red persimilis on there, man, they are right on it because they're so hungry. They go right after different life stages and they just tear up the persimilis. 
when I release a Percy Plus, they're like, oh, yeah, look, there's spider mites over there. Let me just saunter around and kind of get settled in. Because since they've got food in the bottle and the sachet, they don't come out of the bottle starving. So um, that's not necessarily a bad thing because if you have a very, very low spider mite pressure or you're doing it as a preventative, if you can release these pre-fed mites and you're going to be releasing all life stages in those, um, you're going to, they're going to live longer on your plant so they can cruise around looking for mites longer. The red persimilis you get, those are all adults you're getting, but they're going to be starving. So the way at this point I kind of see it and, and things may change, you know, as we use them more in growing facilities. But if you have a current mite problem, you've, you've suppressed it with a knockdown spray, but you still, man, we've got mites out there. I would definitely at this point go with the more traditional persimilis. But if you're being preventative um, and lots of my growers are, man, they're just putting persimilis out every two weeks that they say do not have a spider mite problem, this Percy Plus may be a better way to go because they're going to live longer on your plants because of becoming pre-fed. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so when you say uh, doesn't have a problem, does that mean they aren't spotting any spider mites in their grow or they might only see like a few in a given area? Like if you like low pressure, walk around, yeah, very low pressure. Thing is, is with my ornamental growers, in Florida, there is no such thing almost as low pressure down there, you know, because when you're outside growing, you, 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 it's extremely warm. You don't have a winter freeze. That's where you have just such intense pressure. You know, some of those guys in Florida, you know, they could be spraying for spider mites every three days where they typically are releasing every two weeks for someone. But if you're an indoor grow, you don't have a history of spider mites, you know, your pressure is going to be so much lower um, down there or up there or over there, wherever you are, um, that this may be a better choice for you. But if you've gotten spider mites into your facility by bringing in cuts or an employee clothing or, you know, a, somebody did something, you know, um, and you've got a problem, you know, the regular persimilis probably the better way to go. But again, talk to me in six months because this might change. You know, that's the one thing about biocontrol. Stuff I said even three to four years ago, we know more now, and it's not true anymore. And, you know, that's why we've got this constant we need to keep learning and trialing and testing and, and push ourselves so that we can improve these programs and get smarter. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And I know you have some exciting stuff uh, hopefully coming down the line, too, that's not quite at this stage. You know, there's always things, innovation happening. So that's, uh, that's wonderful to hear. Yeah, no, it's it's great to see it here. Uh, I mean, to, for me, I mean, well, I get excited almost in, over any bug thing, but to have like this handful of new stuff this year, it's it's really exciting um, to to have new innovations and new ways to solve growers' problems. Um, you know, so and I'm happy to see because you know BioBee's been very forward thinking. Um, and uh, they have some really uh, cool products that, and one of the things, which I posted about on social media, if you saw, they basically made Pokemon cards for all the biocontrol agents, which, <laughs> oh, uh, well, you know, I love <laughs> stuff like that, man. I, I went I, at the hemp show, man, I was right there and I'll take one, 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 one. And I snagged myself an entire deck of them and I was out of there. There was no way 
I was not getting a stack of them. And I talked about them at the show, and then BioB got back to me, and they're like, oh, my God, after you talk, they said their, their booth was, like, rushed because everybody was down there trying to get these cards, and they gave every card away they had. And now they're getting requests for them. But I think it's a great idea because it's a quick reference card on the beneficials, you know, quick temperature, how do you release, and things you need to know. And, again, it's, it's really cool, like in a Pokemon format. Yeah, no, that's that's fine. I this is totally off topic, but I was just talking with uh, Ben the other day about how all the stuff that we saved as kids that we thought would be worth something someday, uh, like baseball cards, are not worth anything, and all the stuff that no one really saved, like Pokemon cards, I guess, are worth thousands of dollars. So, go figure. You never know. Well. I I look at it as if it was sold to be a collectible, then nobody played with it, and so there's lots of it. If it was sold to be played with, and then the kids all destroyed it, that's where the valuable stuff is, because not many of them exist. Very true, very true. Um, well, yeah. I wanna talk about methods of release, but is there any other like new products or innovation you wanna cover before we get into that? Yes, and after I told you I would be short about all this stuff, I'm trying to add. It's I'm fine, trying to, it's fine. Um, um, so banker plants, you know, the, this is more of a regular practice in vegetable and ornamental production. It's slowly creeping in here and there in cannabis. Um, I have not really seen it executed extremely well in cannabis yet because some states won't even allow banker plant systems to be used um, in the growing operations. But the idea is, as I mentioned before, you're releasing all these beneficials. If there's no food, they starve to death. And some of the mites, things like cucumeris and persimilis, they're not that expensive. But when you get into parasitoids, um, and these are the tiny little wasps that uh, control aphids, it can get expensive if you have to release them over and over and over again. So there are these programs for using plants that you grow aphids on, and those aphids will not attack the crop you're growing, but it basically, so when you release your parasitoids, if they don't find any aphids in your crop you're growing, they can go to these banker plants, find loads of aphids, lay their eggs in the aphids there, and then those, those parasitoids emerge and then go out. So you're actually building a population in your greenhouse, and many ornamental growers do this. They start these programs early spring before the aphids even show up, and so they're rearing the parasitoids in their greenhouses on these banker plants. So when the aphids do show up in the spring, they've got this whole army of parasitoids already there waiting. The program that most people know about, and you've been to any of my workshops, we've talked about it, there's a banker plant system for Aphidius colmani. Colmani is a parasitoid that controls, and I'm going to give you like the air quotes, smaller aphid species. Um, we know it does green peach aphid really well, it does cotton melon aphid really well, and it absolutely will parasitize the cannabis aphid, the, the Fordon cannabis, the one that everybody's having problems with. Don't go running out and think this is the magic silver bullet. It is part of a program. It's cousin parasitoid, Aphidius irvi, which is physically much larger, it controls larger aphid species, like um, it does potato aphid, it does foxglove aphid, it also does the cannabis aphid. And it's interesting that the cannabis aphid, um, when you start looking at 
the parasitoids that have been collected out of it, there have been several of them. And luckily, three of them um, are commercially produced at this point. Um, so the idea with the new banker plant is you can grow this larger aphid on it, and, or the larger aphid, which is a pea aphid, and it is grown on fava beans. So the new banker plant system that's coming to market raises Aphidius irvi on the fava beans with pea aphids. The one we have been using is barley with the bird cherry oat aphid and raising Aphidius colmani. So now there's two banker plant systems that allows you to raise two different parasitoids because the colmani typically is not going to go over and parasitize the pea aphids and the, the, the larger parasitoid, the Irvi, is not going to go over and parasitize your bird cherry oat aphids necessarily. Again, there can be a little crossover, but for the most part. Um, the Irvi system is still very new. This is the first year any of my growers have tried it in ornamentals. We've had a few challenges. First of all, the pea aphids are super cool because they're giant, and they've got these beautiful long legs. I absolutely love pea aphids, but if you look at them and give them the side eye, they drop off the plant. I mean, it's a, you touch the plant, they drop. It's a behavioral thing. So if you go to move banker plants or the, the pea aphids on the fava beans and you knock them, your aphids are going to fall off. If they're on rolling benches that get banged, your aphids are going to fall off. So it's been a bit of a challenge on keeping the aphids up on the plant. Um, also, they don't like extremely warm weather. Um, and that could be true for the aphids on the banker plant for the smaller parasitoids. Um, but I do think there's potential there to build up a colony, uh, build, up, build up a bunch of these uh, parasitoids in your cannabis facility that both will go after cannabis aphid. So that's something new. I don't know any cannabis growers testing this yet, but um, I think it, uh, it, it's something we're going to have to look at and see if it's going to work in those systems. So if I'm a grower, what am I buying? Am, am I like raising these you know barley plants for example and then buying the aphid the pea aphid or how did how does this work okay so for the smaller aphid banker plant system you actually buy uh it's a it's a basically a rock wool i think it's rock wool or oasis you get a cube and it's barley's already growing on it and it's loaded with bird cherry oat aphids which don't freak out if some of the bird cherry aphids get onto your cannabis because they can't live on it, but growers are not physically going to be able to tell bird cherry oat aphids apart from rice root aphids. They look identical, but bird cherry oat aphid doesn't live on cannabis and the root aphids don't live on barley. So um, it's, it's, they're not moving back and forth. Um, but you, you buy the actual plant. When it comes to the larger aphid plant banker system, basically you buy pea aphids by the gram that are shipped to you. And so you have to have your uh, fava beans or pea plants already growing for when the aphids arrive. You just inoculate them on the plant and they go nuts on those plants. For facilities that are open to the outside, um, this is, Another really great thing about these aphid banker plant systems is it not only does it raise these parasitoids, it can also provide food for a lot of your native beneficials that move in. We often find 
um, like lacewing larvae on these plants. We often find surfid flies on these plants. And that's just because they've come in from the outside and are utilizing it as a food source. But that's fine because the, it's the immature life stage that's eating the aphids. They're going to pupate there, and then you're going to have a new adult in your facility that can go lay more eggs. Okay, so for those listening, I confused the two. Um, so the pea aphid uh, does not go with the barley. Uh, I said that right. backwards. The pea aphid goes with a fava bean fava so, bean, okay. or pea plants. Yeah, and the bird cherry oat aphid goes on the barley plants. Great. And then and once for smaller aphids and once for bigger. And since we're talking about banker plants, the other one it was aureus and uh, um, purple flash pepper or something similar. I realize we're not talking about uh, we're talking about pollen sources at that point, I believe. But that would be yeah. another potential banker plant to mention for folks if we're talking banker plants. Do you want to just spend a minute on that? Yeah, th that's exactly what you said. It's you use a pepper plant to basically provide pollen for aureus. Aureus is a minute pirate bug. It's an excellent generalist predator. It's mainly used for thrips management, but also feed on spider mites and other soft-bodied insects. In outdoor hemp and hemp and cannabis production, I find it naturally occurring. This little insect loves hemp and cannabis. The problem is indoors, when you're in an indoor grow, you can release them in there, but you don't have pollen for them really to feed on because they have to have pollen to be able to reproduce. Um, you also have to have a minimum of 12 hours of light. Throw that in too. But um, the idea is this pepper plant then provides the pollen for the aureus. Um, honestly, any of my cannabis growers that have tried it, I find the little shriveled pepper plant in the corner of a bench <laughs> being neglected. Um, that's the hardest thing is either do banker plants or don't. You can't half-ass it. You have to commit to it. You have to have somebody in charge of it. And generally, they don't get watered and dried up and die. I see it all the time. So don't half-ass it and say banker plants don't work unless you truly commit to it um, and do it correctly. How far away from your crop can they be would be question number one. And then question number two is, it sounds like you said in outdoor situations, you don't necessarily need banker plants. Um, where would a greenhouse fall in that? Depend, well, greenhouses, we are using them in there just to up our pollen. Because you can still get outdoor environmental pollen in a greenhouse, especially, you know, if they, they, the vents open and things like that. Um, but it, it just, it's really going to boost their numbers in there. Because we're even using these, um, and I've, if you've been, again, to some of my talks, Metrolina greenhouses, we're using these peppers, alyssum, and these other banker plants out side uh, with mum production because mums themselves um, when we're growing them at a growing facility it's just all green it's all vegetation and there's no pollen there and so we're adding these even outdoors uh, to encourage the aureus to stay more locally uh, to our plants even though pollen can blow in from the environment we're really just concentrating it there for them so we still I mean we even use these banker plants outdoors okay they're just not, you are getting more pollen, it sounds like, outdoors, so it's not as... Absolutely. Um, there was a study done looking at Swirsky inside of a greenhouse and then outdoors on a pepper crop. And they provided Swirsky um, 
supplemental pollen, because you can actually buy cattail pollen from like BioBest to supplement feed. What they found is indoors uh, in pepper production, it made a huge difference. You really got an increase in um, the numbers of Swirsky and predation on thrips and everything. Outdoors, adding the pollen made no difference because there was enough pollen already just in the environment. And how far away can these plants be, uh, you know, for aureus, I guess, specifically? Well, it kind of depends. I mean, it could be pretty far. The thing you have to look at and think about is, so when you go into ornamental and vegetable greenhouses, um, they're not giant wind tunnels. A lot of cannabis facilities, it's like going into a hurricane, it feels like. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think about insects trying to fly and move around in that. I mean, the winds like that move your pests amazingly um, also. But if you don't have super high winds, you know, if you, I mean, the aureus can travel huge distances, but if you have a heavy wind, it's going to be hard for them to fly upwind. So you may need to put more plants at the head of the direction your wind is coming from. Um, But, you know, you're not solely relying on these for your control. They're a supplement to it. But I would say of all the cannabis facilities I've been in, the distance is not too far. And if you look at, again, what we're doing outside, you know, we're doing these over about, I think about 10 acres outside, putting these banker plants and dotting them around. Okay. So it's not going to be, a flying's not going to be an issue for Aphidius Colmani and Aphidius Irvi and Aureus in a greenhouse. They fly far enough. Trichogramma, who we do not have a banker plant system for, those are the egg parasitoids for caterpillars. They can't fly for shit. So you have to do a ton of release points for them. Okay. Um, I guess I shouldn't have used that word. No, they can't fly for, for, for whatever. You get my point. Um, any, you said there's no banker plants for them. Um, so you're just talking about when you release them, you have to have a greater... Yeah, you, you can't just like open a container in the middle of your greenhouse and let them fly out. You can kind of do that with like the, uh, the aphid parasitoids. Lots of people do. They just open the bottle, set them out, and let them go. You really want to get them as close to the plants as possible, but just, you know, walk out your door and look at the landscape. If parasitoids couldn't fly any kind of distance, how are they going to survive? You know, it, insects have to be able to travel a certain distance in order to be able to find a food source. So in the most grows, it's not going to be an issue where they're not going to be able to get around unless you have these, again, hurricane force winds pushing them down to one end of the grow. Okay. Uh, So any other, other products, innovation, things to cover before we get into methods of release? Um, Well, one thing I do want to mention, um, and remember, I'm not paid by any of these companies. You know, Bugliti Consulting is completely neutral on all of this. I'm just bringing information. Um, but BASF has released, and unfortunately, they were really t- going to promote this last year, um, but because of COVID, it didn't really get rolled out, um, a Velifer. Velifer is an insecticide that contains Bavaria bassiana, where it's a different strain that's in than what is in botanigard botanigard contains the gha strain the bavaria bassiana and velifer is the ppri 5339 strain so it's a different isolate so 
if you're finding you're using one Bavaria product and you're not getting the results you expected, you may try a different strain and different formulation to see if it works better in your growing system. Um, because, again, you guys all know that there's differences between the cultivars of cannabis. You know, it's, there's differences there. Well, it's the same thing, too, with these microbials. There's different strains that perform differently under different conditions and target different pests. And so you have to find the one that works for your particular growing situation. Um, what's interesting about this product is the oil it is in has proven to be Pretty darn safe. I haven't had anybody burn plants with it except when somebody tank mixed Velifer with Suff Oil X. You cannot mix two oils together. You will absolutely burn your plants. Please do not do that. But just straight up Velifer um, as a contact product for uh, foliar uh, things like thrips, white flies. If you use it tank mix with an IGR, it can be really good with aphids. Uh, and one of my growers has been looking at it as a drench for root aphid, and the photos they showed me have been pretty impressive. Is this going to be the be-all magical answer for root aphids? No, but it may work better in your system than some of the other products. So I definitely think it's worth um, looking at. And what's one thing that's really nice, too, that uh, BASF has done is they do have available from them compatibility with biocontrol agents. So let's say you are releasing, you know, cucumeris or using persimilis and you want to spray Velifer and you're like, hey, what's this going to do? They actually have a chart available that will tell you about compatibility with it. So, which is, it's super useful to have because most pesticide companies don't provide that information. For folks that want to look that up, Velifer is spelled V-E-L-I-F-E-R. And there's more information on the BASF side about it. Just want to throw that out there. Um, you know, you kind of did a perfect segue into microbials. And one of the things, I, I know we want to talk about methods of release, or I did, but um, one of the things you wanted to talk about was contaminated non-EPA registered microbial products. So why don't we skip to that topic first, since we're talking about, you know, miticides, insecticides um, uh, from a microbial perspective. So, yes, maybe I planned that segue there for you because <laughs> I was going to make you talk about this. Yeah, and you did so. highlight this, but I, I, before we get in, I want to highlight this one more time. So when we talk about, you know, trichoderma, Bavaria bassiana, even mycorrhizal fungi, or, or any of these microbial products, they're very strain specific. So you can't, uh, you can't just say, oh, I'm going to apply Bavaria or I'm going to apply trichoderma. Um, that's not, that's not enough information. Um, they're all different from different suppliers, different growers. And so people need to differentiate and know exactly what they're getting. And that kind of leads into what you're going to talk about here. So take it away. Right. So um, I've worked a long time with these microbial products, and when we say microbial, um, mostly what we're going to talk about right now are, are fungal products, uh, fungus that, um, that the entomopathogenic ones are ones that kill insects. So this is what you know I'm mostly interested in, not as much the disease management ones. But on, in, in the United States, if you make a claim that your product controls an insect or mite or kills anything, it has to be EPA registered unless 
you're making what I call the salad dressing products, which are basically made out of essential oils um, that are on what we call the 25B list. Those are the non-EPA registered products. So that means those products aren't aren't registered through the government, but what the government figures is, oh, here's a list of, of inputs. If you wanna make a product, you know, you're not gonna kill yourself, you're not gonna poison the environment, and are letting people bring products to market that way. That's why when you get um, some products on the market, you'll see there's no EPA registration number. If you ask them for any trial work, they really have no data. My, my favorite thing to see is when they actually spell insect names wrong on their labels. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of um, unproven products. So what people are trying to do is sell microbial products, not as pesticides, but it's either soil inoculants or just not cleaning anything so that they feel, I'm not saying this kills insects, wink, wink, nod, nod, and we're not gonna give you any directions. Then the EPA can't say anything to us. We're just gonna sell you metarizium or we're just gonna sell you Isaria or Hirsutella or Bavaria or claim it's a soil inoculum because the inoculums are not really being regulated. Because in the past, we weren't really using um, these microbial entomopathogens as soil inoculums. But now there's research that has come out like with Bavaria botiana, the active ingredient in, in Botanigard, Velifer, Biosteris, that there is some um, inoculation to the roots with it. So what people are trying to do is bring these microbial products to market and scoot around the EPA, which I will just tell you right now, you are taking, you are taking such a huge risk doing that because the EPA products are highly regulated. I mean, they test them to make sure that the purity, spore count, all this kind of stuff, and you can get all that information from the company if you talk to them. These non-regulated products, and, and where I keep finding this is I walk into a cannabis facility and I'll see just like a bag laying there. And I'm like, what's that? And I had this one situation, the guy's like, ah, oh, well, I bought that at a cannabis trade show. And it has like something you would print at home, uh, like a shipping label, and it just would say like, you know, one tablespoon per gallon. The product that we collected um, out in Oregon at a facility, we took it, um, and the grower had already been sprayed this, spraying it. That particular product um, that he'd already been using in his uh, facility actually contained a human pathogen in it. Um, and he wasn't aware. The other thing that's very concerning is when you get these products without any pesticide label, they don't tell you about a protective equipment. If you buy, again, any of the microbial products, the, the Bavaria, the, the Botanigard, the any of those, you're going to have to wear a respirator because even though Bavaria is not a human pathogen, you probably shouldn't be breathing it. These contain no warnings like that. So the growers don't think they have to wear proper protective equipment, the PPE that's required on federally regulated labels. And this particular product, the pathogen that was in there was aspergillus. And growers are freaking out all the time about failing microbial testing and aspergillus is one you are absolutely fail for. And here it is being sprayed out on the plants uh, by this product. Um, I was contacted last year, maybe it was early this year, by a grower in Vermont. 
who asked me for directions on how to use metarizium. Metarizium is the active ingredient in MET52, but they had just purchased metarizium. And I'm like, well, what's on the label? And well, there is no label. And so I asked where they got it. They sent me a website and it's a product that was coming out of China. Again, not EPA registered. And all it was that just, you know, was labeled as metarizium. So we sent that off. And that particular product um, contained, I can't remember, it was like 15 or 25 different other fungal and bacteria in that product, in addition to the metarizium. Um, and the metarizium that was in there um, had an extremely low, what they call the CFU, colony forming unit, from what they claimed was in there. So even that little bit of metarizium in there, less than 25% of it was viable. So if you're, you know, here this person was just going to spray it, no protective equipment, and didn't even know how to spray it. They could have easily, if they have breathed this stuff, you know, who knows? Also, are you going to fail your test? Are there plant pathogens in there that can cause problems? Um, I was at another facility recently, and uh, they had ordered metarizium off of Alibaba. Um, I, those two samples are getting tested right now. And I've also been ordering samples from other companies um, that basically won't make any pesticidal claims, but they're selling like Bavaria Bastiana. And again, they're trying to scoot around getting the EP registered where the stuff, again, has to be looked at because there's such an appetite in the cannabis industry for these products. And I think all these growers that have bought this stuff do not realize the risk they're taking with buying these products because they really don't understand that really this stuff needs to be EPA registered um, unless it truly is a soil inoculum and is not being applied for use for insect management. But typically, soil inoculum rates are way lower than the insecticidal killing rates for these intimal pathogens. So even if you buy a legit inoculum and spray it thinking it's going to work with insecticidal, the rates are going to be too low, really, to get what you need for it to do. Um, it's super scary to me because I'm really concerned someone's going to end up really sick uh, from this. So please, 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 when you're going to buy any of these microbial products, Bavaria, Isaria, I know metarizium is nearly impossible to get unless you're ordering it from China through like Alibaba or stuff. You know, just I wouldn't do it. Think about the risk. Um, uh, if you do it, send the product off to a lab to have it tested. Um, I'm going to make a social media post to show you guys the plates that came back from this um, metarizium product being plated. It looks like a four-year-old sneezed on the plate and all the different stuff growing on the leaves, on the, the auger surface. It's disgusting. No product should look like that. Those are all really good points. Uh, one other thing I want to bring up too is the risk of heavy metals. Um, you don't know what yep. form of carrier they may be using on there that could also lead to having creating issues down the road. We don't know if there's any carcinogens involved. Um, I mean, I understand why people want to skirt these EPA uh, regulations because they're really, really difficult. Um, it's very hard to get a product EPA registered, and that's why the 25B list is so convenient for a lot of companies um, on the, you know, on that side of things. But 
you know, you don't get the level of research to know um, or the level of regulation. So you don't even you don't know if the product's going to be as effective as they're claiming. And then you don't know if the product is as safe as they're claiming, because even with some of these 25 B products, I'm not convinced that they're things that are totally safe. I mean, time oil, um, for example, and some of these other ones, I think still have um, can be applied at concentrations that I wouldn't want to be, you know, breathing or around necessarily. Um, and, and then when we talk about these microbials, uh, you know, you're trusting the company and I don't, and that company may be trusting another company. Um, and at the end of the day, it's something that uh, I just think I agree with you. The risk is, is way too high. Go with an EPA registered microbial product if you're going to use it, especially if it has pesticidal effects. And if you, you know, people are all like, you know, don't want government regulation. If this doesn't prove to you why we need government regulation over these products, I don't know what will convince people because this is exactly why. Because again, you, someone could potentially die from one of these products because you don't know what's in it. And that's why, I mean, you could say buyer beware, but this is why we have the EPA is to stop bad products like these from being sold because again this this whole industry has sprung up basically because of the cannabis industry i do not find any of these products in ornamental or vegetable production and never have in past but in the last two to three years this has exploded in the cannabis industry um if you are going to buy metarizium isaria um bavaria you want to make sure the product has an EPA registration number. It has a true label on it that tells you the protective equipment you need to be wearing. Um, it should tell you, you know, when you apply this product, how long before you can go back in. Um, I'm finding the cannabis industry, you're not reading pesticide labels. I was at a, at a facility not too long ago that they were applying BT, uh, uh, it's for fly management. Everybody knows about that. The problem was the product they were using and they were drenching their indoor plants with is for outdoor use for ponds. It, it was a completely wrong label. No one had taken the time to actually read the label to see, one, where we're applying this. Is it on the label? And you cannot use outdoor products indoor, just like some indoor products you cannot use outdoor because the inerts are different. This was not designed to be drenched on plant material. Um, also, the pests, fungus gnats, weren't even on the label anywhere for what they were doing. And it, it's just completely the wrong label. And this was a legit legal licensed grow, but people aren't understanding pesticides and how to use them properly. You guys don't want to be the one that the EPA makes an example out of because it's going to happen because the, you know, ornamental and vegetable production facilities and even cannabis facilities are inspected and you don't want to be the people that are using the wrong illegal stuff in your facility. So read those labels, make sure that, you know, it's EPA registered. And also you should be able, if you have a question, pick up the phone and call somebody. Any of this microbial weirdo stuff from online, you're not going to be able to reach anybody that can give you good, solid information like BioSafe, BioWorks, BSF, any of those guys. You can always reach people there to answer your technical questions about these products and how to be safe about applying them. And just a friendly reminder, uh, there's a different BT for uh, caterpillars than there is for uh, 
fungus gnats. So make sure you're looking at that when you're buying your uh, BT. And there's actually two different caterpillar strains. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. There's a Zowie and Kristaki. And there's also a strain for Japanese beetles. There's a bunch of different strains of Bacillus thuringiensis floating around. You have to make sure lock and key system. You got to get the right one for your pest. Which leads you back to starting with identification as the very first step in any of this. Uh, just a friendly reminder on that. Um, <laughs> I listen when you talk, Suzanne. I, I pick up things. It takes me a little while, but I'll get there. Um, well, I mean, if anybody, I mean, besides knowing I love Harry Potter, bugs, and Star Trek, ID is probably one of the most important things I've preached in my life. Um, you have got to ID what your problem is before you treat. You have to. Yeah, and I know I've tried to send you photos of things like aphids in the past, and you're like, I need a better photo. I need to really see those genitals. Like, you really dive in because you can't necessarily tell things apart without, you know, very specific key indicators. And that's why, I don't know, I guess I just realized more and more how complicated it is to get the right identification because you've already talked about how, you know, there's different parasitoids for different, different aphids. Um, it's not a... It's not as simple as uh, a one-size-fits-all with a program. No, and I'm going to tell you right now, cannabis growers, if there is a mite in your soil, it is not Streliolaps skimnatus. Every mite picture that is getting put on social media, everybody's like, oh, it's strats, it's strats. No, it's not. If you put out a bunch of strats and you had a ton of food for them, yeah, possibly. With any living soil, with any compost, anything like that, you're going to get decomposers in there. That's living soil. Living soil has living things in it. You're going to see mites in there, and they're helping decompose things. And it's not a black and white, you know, is that mite good or bad? There's a lot of them that are, you know, indifferent. They're just living in the soil. They're not hurting the plant. They're not predatory. And there's tons of them in there that do that. And you cannot just take a picture with your cell phone and post it on Facebook and expect someone to ID it. There is nobody that can do that on this planet. Mites are really hard to ID, let alone soil-dwelling mites where there hasn't been a ton of research done, let alone cell phone images. Anytime, you know, I'm working with mite ID, most of the time I have to send stuff off and the stuff has to be slide mounted. You've got to look at all those details on there. So... You know, it's very complicated. I, that's all I can say. And Facebook is not going to give you ID answers on that stuff. So maybe the short answer is if you see a mite uh, on your soil, you don't need to necessarily freak out unless you're starting to see excessive amounts of them where their populations are just exploding or if you're seeing plant damage. I, I, so when it comes to soil mites and cannabis, and so far I nor anybody else that is a trained entomologist have seen bulb mites in cannabis, even though, again, people are saying there are bulb mites in there. Um, bulb mites in bulb crops can be a problem. But any soil-dwelling mites, I haven't seen cause any economic problems in cannabis. Now, you could have root disease and you don't realize it, and then the secondary mites move in that are eating your dead, decaying roots, and people think they're the primary. They're just the secondary showing up and taking advantage of decaying plant matter, where normally it's a pathogen that's the initial problem. And that can be very hard to, to tease that all apart. Um, but I haven't seen any mites 
in cannabis production to this day in the soil that have caused any economic loss in cannabis. I think that's, that's good information. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Um, You're very welcome. Pat. The ones that I, I see the most of in living soils would be the, um, uh, it's isopods, I believe, and then springtails, where I see explosions of populations. Those are the two things I've had people reach out to me with, um, where they just see you know, massive, massive amounts of growth. I don't know if you want to touch on either of those, since we're talking well, about Well, the it. interesting thing about springtails is it's not one species. They're multiple species. So if you're an anthurium grower in Europe, springtails can be a pest and feed on your roots there. And actually... Um, there have been some agricultural losses of seedlings out in the field. I'm trying to remember which crop it was. Again, from springtails feeding on those, but that's not what we're seeing in cannabis. And again, there's multiple species of springtails. So yes, can springtails be a pest? Yes. But have we seen them be of a problem in cannabis to cause economic damage? No. That's why you have to be very specific about your information, um, knowing the crop, where you're located, all these different kinds of things. Um, I have not got into springtail identification. Good Lord, that's a whole nother. I'm sure there's some springtail nerd somewhere on the planet that will be more than happy to help you with ID. Um, but for the most part, that's not anything I worry about. The only thing in the soil from an arthropod kind of standpoint that you need to worry about is fungus mass because they eat your roots, they vector pathogens, you just don't want them around. And those are very manageable if you treat them correctly. I mean, beneficial nematodes are amazing at controlling them when you get a good quality product and you apply them correctly. There's also the beetles, there's mites, there's all kinds of things you can treat them for. And root aphids. Root aphids are the, the, oh my gosh, you're not going to sleep tonight because you have root aphids because they're very hard to manage. But other than that, I mean, there's some weird things. You know, we've had fire ants, you know, feed on cannabis. You know, we've had some cutworm situations. Uh, we've had a few root knot nematodes. Um, and we have this new situation with um, uh, the tobacco ring spot virus that's vectored by nematodes that is um, just been found in a crop, and that's vectored by plant parasitic nematodes, completely different than beneficial nematodes. But for the most part, um, there's not, you know, the, the, the foliar pests are probably going to take you out before any of the, the root pests. Um, you know, again, in hemp, outdoors, we've had a few weevil issues uh, in the soil line, but root aphids are the ones that, you know, are really the only thing to freak out about in the soil from an indoor growing perspective. What about excessive levels of isopods, you know, roly poly bugs, pill bugs, well, whatever you want to call them? Because I have that's seen that. Self, oh my gosh, yeah. It's not super common, it's not. but it's self inflicted too much organic matter in your soil. Um, because, you know, the American way, if a little something's good, more is better. And the populations just build and build and build. Um, and I've absolutely seen them eating the plants. I have talked to people that they're out there vacuuming them out. You almost honestly kind of need to change your growing system because you're just sustaining them by having too much organic matter in your soil. Great. Thanks for talking about that. Um, all right. So 
onto a little bit, you know, I know we've been talking for a while now, but can we just quickly go over methods of release? You know, you, sure. you kind of highlighted a little bit when he's talked about sachets, but there may be people that don't even know, you know, what a sachet is. So, um, I don't know the best way to approach this. If you want to talk about a few different insects, or if you just wanted to pick one beneficial insect and then talk about the different ways it could be released and why that's important. Well, let's talk about, let, okay, we'll talk about two predatory mites and then we'll talk about nematodes. Cause I think those are the things that I see screwed up applied incorrectly the most. So okay. let's jump back to persimilis. Um, persimilis, there is so many ways to apply persimilis today. Traditionally, back in the 90s, it would just come in a bottle and you would sprinkle it out on the plant. And there's a lot of that still going on today. But depending on plant shape, depending how you grow, if you sprinkle over the top, you're going to lose a lot of those persimilis to the floor. Um, I really cringe when people say, oh, just pour the persimilis at the base of the plant. They'll find their way up. You know, if my mom's taking me to the mall, I want her to drop me at the mall, not six blocks from the mall because it's going to take an awful lot of work to get to the mall. Put them where your pests are. Think about it. You know, get them as close as possible. And so the, the next progression um, from those bottles on the persimilis is actually the vial with the nipple top. Again, been to any of my workshops, you've been to any of my classes, you guys have all heard me talk about this. In fact, I'm holding one in my hand right now, Tad, as we speak, because I keep it on my desk here. Um, it's a vial about the size of a roll of quarters, and it looks like uh, the top of a ketchup uh, bottle, you know, the, the nipple top ones. When you hold this, persimilis will run up to the tip of it. And then what you can do is you just walk along and touch the plant, and persimilis goes right out onto the plant and will start feeding. That way you can see how many mites are going on your plant. There's no waste to the floor. There's no carrier on the plant. It's very neat. It's very clean. I, it's my favorite way to apply persimilis. And it's been around a long time, but I swear, I feel like this was made for the cannabis industry, even though, you know, we've been using it in, you know, uh, the interior landscape when we're treating palm trees and malls and things like that. We've been using this product for decades. So this application method is a really good way to apply them. Um, now, again, we have, in the past, we've never had persimilis and sachets. Now we're going to get... Um, these sachets that have the quick release, uh, you know, as much as I like BioB, I'm not sold on the quick release sachet because honestly, I'd rather instead of having a sash, hanging a sachet on every plant and then dealing with sachets for the quick release, I'd rather just use the vial and walk down and, and touch the plant. But the slow release sachet may have something there, um, even though it only lasts for two weeks. Um, and traditionally, you only apply persimilis every, uh, every two weeks. So you kind of have to look at your economics if you want to hang the sachets out for two weeks or, again, you want to come through with the vial every two weeks. You're going to have to look at your situation and see what works for you in that. Now, we are starting to see more um, drone releases for outdoor. Um, they've been doing it in strawberries and citrus. And now um, Parabug has been working with Beneficial Insectary out in California uh, doing outdoor uh, drone releases where they put the persimilis in the drones and they fly them out and, and drop them. And that's basically kind of how you would do loose mites um, for production out there. Now we're going to talk about cucumeris, which is a different predatory mite. Again, I love cucumeris, not as much as persimilis, but it, it is a freaking workhorse. 
What's nice about it is it has a white host range. Not only will it gobble up onion thrips, western flower thrips, it will destroy broad mites. It's heavily used in ornamental production to prevent broad mite damage on a lot of crops. If you're one of my consulting customers, you're most likely using cucumeris in your program because it's a cheap, easy insurance policy against these pests I just mentioned. In addition to, we know it will snack on spider mites and spider mite eggs out there. So um, it's a good general mite to release. It doesn't have that same fast running up behavior like uh, Persimilis does. So you cannot get it in the release vial. So you have to get the product loose. Um, loose or in a sachet. But the loose product, um, again, I'm not super excited about um, putting it over the tops of plants, especially cannabis plants that are large because you're gonna lose a lot to the floor. Now in plug trays, like if you've just stuck all your uh, cannabis uh, cuts into like a 1020 flat, before you put the Jiffy Dome on, you could just sprinkle in there lightly you know, a tablespoon or so of cucumeris, which I highly recommend because you have to start your bios in propagation. Do not wait, people. You have to start them then. It's pennies to treat then. And again, it's going to start feeding on all those pest problems then before they have a chance to build. When your plants are that small, it's not that far for them to walk. Now, the sachets, which we've talked about, you can also do those in propagation. And you can use those on the plants. And the cucumeris comes in that sachet. The slow-release sachets, they almost look like tea bags. Neither come with a hook or they're on a stick. There is a breeding colony of cucumeris in there. And mites will slow-release out of a pinhole in there for four to six weeks. And the advantage of doing that is if you hang these in your cannabis plants, instead of having to come through every week or every other week to, to loose sprinkle cucumeris and everything, get it on the floor, make a mess, you just have a naturally slow-releasing population coming out, and it works very well. You can absolutely use those sachets in propagation, but, you know, the propagation cycles are pretty short. So oftentimes, if you stick them in there, and then you're going to be transplanting in, you know, two, three weeks maybe, uh, to, don't give me all kinds of complaints about that's not your time on average, because everybody roots differently and different sizes and everything. But, you know, here you put that sachet in, and let's say if you're, you're stepping up the plants in two weeks, now you've got the sachet that you still have several weeks still left on it. You can either put it in new propagation trays, or you can just step them up with your crop, because you want to make sure you get that full use out of the sachet. But these sachets on the plants have really been a game changer as far as labor savings and also having that consistent slow release. And if you've got these sachets, you can absolutely come through and spray with products like Impede, Stuff Oil X, uh, any of the, the Botanigard, the Velifer. And since the breeding colony is protected inside that sachet, even if the product you use, like Stuff Oil X, is non-selective, it will kill predatory mites. So it will kill them on the foliage when you're spraying, but it, it, those mites are going to start releasing still out. And so once your cephalolex is dry, any of those mites that emerge after that are still going to continue uh, to be able to live on the plant. So you can spray and it doesn't disrupt the releasing in your system um, as long as you're spraying with products that are somewhat compatible with biocontrol agents. And generally in cannabis and organic production, we are. Um, so those release sachets um, 
have really been a game changer on releasing. Um, the other release thing I want to talk about are beneficial nematodes. In fact, I was just about to post on my Facebook page, which is uh, for Bug Lady Consulting. Please don't send me personal friend requests to Suzanne Wainwright because that's where I, you know, do my cat, dog, and Star Trek and Harry Potter stuff. Bug Lady Consulting is where I put the links. But BASF has done a really good video on how to apply nematodes. And I see a lot of people saying they're applying nematodes for fungus gnat control and not getting the results. I think because they're not applying them correctly. Um, there's lots of different ways to apply nematodes, um, and you have to look at your system. For commercial production, um, the most standard way to do it is people mix the nematodes up in a five-gallon bucket, and then they use a dosatron to apply them out so they get even dosing um, through the crop. And that video uh, that Jen Berg did explains that, which is explains exactly how to do it. For smaller facilities or home grows, typically people are buying sponges um, because you can get smaller counts on those and you have to wring them out in things like watering cans and then you water your plants. But you have to make sure that your nematodes are about the same temperature as your water you're mixing them in. You need to have that pretty close together. You want to make sure you use them up as soon as you mix them because nematodes can drown in the water. You don't want to let the water heat up because that, that can do it. Also, um, with your nematodes too, again, I really like people to buy direct from the insectaries so that you're getting the 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 freshest, the most viable product as possible because sometimes the distributors, you don't know if they've stored the products correctly or how long they've even had the products. So does that kind of give you an overview? Yeah, did you, maybe I missed it. Did you talk about ones that come with carriers? Well, all the, well, I would say almost all biocontrol agents come with carriers. Um, and even like cucumeris, you can buy it in vermiculite, you can buy it in bran. There's different carriers for different situations. Typically, if you're dealing with like a legit biocontrol company, they'll know what you need. If you're ordering blindly off the internet, you know, who knows what you're going to get. Um, yeah, but, I guess what I'm um, not, like, I bought, um, sorry, like it looked like a spice shaker. You know, this was 10 years ago now um, when I had thrips. And, uh, so I was shaking out these, you know, it looked like they look like little granules, um, onto, you know, the, my vegetative plants at the time. Um, I, I just didn't know if you wanted to touch on that method of application. Well, you're probably, you're probably putting out cucumeris and you, again, you're probably losing a lot to the floor that way. What you should have done is once you got your tube, you lay it on its side for a little bit. You never want to stand bottles up, always lay them on their side. And then you roll it slowly to reincorporate the mites back in. Then you should have opened the container and then you should have been able to get what they call release boxes. They're basically these little square pop-up boxes with a hanger on them and you hang them in the plant. Then you walk by with basically a spoon and you would put a tablespoon of that in these little boxes. And then the mites over the next day to two days will slowly climb out of those boxes and onto the plant. So that way you get all your mites on your plant and you don't have carrier everywhere. Yeah, I did. I did have carrier everywhere. And uh, I didn't know you 10 years ago, so uh, <laughs> I have an excuse. But now you do. That's true. Well, I, I think the sachets just make so much sense. Um, so, so 
Tell me if this is right. So if it's really bad pest problem, you'd probably do a knockdown spray and then follow it up with a release or with sachets. When do you lean towards, and I realize that every situation is different and I do want to highlight that, but as a general rule, when are you doing more of a, a quick release versus a sachet option for, um, you know, a lot of these insects? Um, I look at, um, how long before the crop is being shipped, shipped or harvested. I look at um, population density. I also look at threats from other pests that may show up that we may have to treat for and how that's gonna interfere with our other program. But if you start in propagation when your plants, that's when they should be the cleanest. Um, you can go in with low rates and again in those those plug trays you can use loose products right there now if you use an aerocloner again you probably don't want to dump carrier all over the top of that because that's going to make a mess and that's where um you know using sachets may make better sense um again i it's like ideal when people root in um you know 10 20 flats um, because if you sprinkle it on and they just land on the the surface uh, surface of like the glue plug or the rock wool or whatever they're using, you know, it's there's so many plants right there they're going to bump into them, um, and that's when I would use the loose. Or if you know if you're uh, even though I, I realize moisture growers are going to be cannabis growers, but if we're growing let's say basil pot tight on a growing bench and it's a four inch pot we may broadcast over the top of that um, because the plants are touching and it makes a canopy and most of the mites are going to end up on the plants and not losing them to the soil because i actually look at leaf structure too um plants like crotons it's a tropical foliage plant super big wide leaf we literally use an orchard air blaster to blow mites out because They've got big leaves that can catch the mites and then it slides them down towards the, the center of the plant and they don't fall through. You look at a cannabis plant that's really, especially if they've been thinned out, they're open, they're leafy, and if you blow mites over the top of that, they're just going to kind of fall through and fall right to the floor. So plant structure makes a difference too on, the, on deciding how we're going to be releasing. Okay, so we're already running a little long, but I want to put you on the spot here. Can you answer two things in the next two to three minutes? And that would be um, one, why it's important to uh, vet the entomologist that you work with, or, or let's just say not even use the word <laughs> entomologist because I'll let you touch on that. But the, um, I guess, uh, IPM expert that you work with or consultant, and then also uh, why every environment is different and there's no... There's no perfect answer that, that works for all situations. Can you just, I know this could be a whole nother podcast, but it, I, I wanted to get this in because I think it's important. If you could just touch on those uh, really quickly. Right. So, um, so again, my background is a bit more in the ornamental market where there's only a couple of us that are consultants. There aren't very many. And when you're a consultant, you're a consultant. You don't have other revenue streams. And we've gone to college for this. Um, and do that. Once I started working a lot more in the cannabis industry and I discovered everybody's a consultant and I would ask people, you know, what are your qualifications? And literally, well, I grew weed for a year, so now I'm going to be a weed consultant. And I think it's really important to ask if someone is giving you advice or identifying something for you, look at what their qualifications are to 
giving you this information um, because I'm finding there's just so much bad information being given out. And people can say whatever they want about their background. I mean, you can call yourself whatever. I could call myself a zoologist, you know, but I didn't go to school for that. And I, I think it's important to dive into people's backgrounds. Did they go to college or these specialized areas? I understand you could be a very good grower without going to school. I get that. But when you get into these specialized niches of entomology or pathology or nematology, the reality is you need to have gone to school for this and, and worked in the field and kept up with all the scientific information. Because if not, if the people you're getting information from don't, you're going to end up getting bad information. And, you know, unfortunately, I've learned, um, and it's been frustrating for me that cannabis is kind of a social media popularity contest. And the reality is, is I'm sorry, guys, I don't have a ton of time to put up all these flashy social media stuff because I'm out in the field working. I'm working with growers. I'm, you know, doing experiments. I'm photographing things. Um, that's why I rely on you, Tad, because you basically kind of are my social media <laughs> to get me out there because I just don't have time for it. And I always say, if you've got all this time to be on producing all this social media content, how are you actually working and doing a job? So, I mean, just, just buyer beware on the information you get out there. Check, you know, what people's qualifications are. LinkedIn's great. You can see how many jobs they've had, where they've worked, and that kind of stuff. And to answer your question on environment, um, it, it's just like, uh, every, let's just think about it too with medications. Actually, COVID vaccines perfectly. Lots of people have gotten the COVID vaccine. We've all responded differently. Same thing with biocontrol agents. You put them out, they can respond differently in different environments where it may work here, where it doesn't work there. So when you're dealing with living, breathing organisms, there's so many variables in the environment. We have to test and see which one is right for your conditions. I mean, I have a pretty good idea for, because of doing this like 30 years now, the good starting point, um, and we're going to tweak it from there. But um, the environment, you know, workflow, you know, is there a soybean field outside your facility or are you next to a, a building? You know, all these kinds of things play in to how we formulate your pest management programs. And my goal is for my growers to have solid, environmentally safe, and cost-effective pest management programs. Because if your program's not cost-effective, you're not going to be in business, then you're not going to be my customer anymore. And I need you guys to stay in business so I have a job. Yeah, that was, that was great. I want to touch on a couple things. Um, first of all, I think that if you are a large facility, um, you could potentially save them money by dialing in their program or decreasing the amount of pest damage that they're having. They may be buying uh, too much of a given a given product, or maybe there's a better product out there that you could recommend. But every situation is so unique, as you mentioned, you know, varying in temperature, humidity, uh, stage of plant, um, airflow, all of these things that uh, it really does uh, require a lot of experience and background in order to make a good recommendation. And on that note, I know I'm going to get pushed back on the fact that, you know, you don't have to go to college to know something about, about a thing. Um, I guess I'm the perfect example of that when it comes to my background, since my background's in special education, but I did get a master's degree 
for what that's worth. Um, but I do, I do think there is a huge advantage to going to school. Now, for those people that didn't go to school or didn't have that opportunity, um, you know, there's, there are wonderful people in this industry. I think Kelly Vance is a great example of that. Uh, but he has a lot of uh, experience as a large-scale greenhouse grower prior to ever getting into insects and then spent a lot of time doing work with insects. Um, but be aware that, you know, you'll even see variability within these insectaries in terms of the level of knowledge uh, that they have, or these companies selling insects. I've seen some of the recommendations on there versus the ones that you're, you know, you and I have talked about them. And sometimes they don't really line up as well. So uh, really do vet um, your information and make sure that you're optimizing it for the health of your grow. And, and doing research on something doesn't mean Googling it. Uh, you know, I see this a growers like, well, I researched this. It's like, well, how did you research it? Well, you Googled it. There is so much bad, wrong information. I mean, again, I could write a whole book on bad pest management information on cannabis on the internet or a coffee table book on the wrong identification of things on there. Because again, I don't know all insects. I try my best and I'm trying to improve constantly by learning, doing more, rubbing shoulders with you know, the systematists that are specialists in an area and, and all that. But I don't know everything. And as growers, you have to be good at lots of things. But in a way, I don't don't yell at me, but master of none in a way, because I don't do fertilization. I don't do irrigation. But you guys have to be able to handle all that. Leave it to the specialist when you're getting down to the very specifics on some of this that we can help you with. Um, and I will say, Ted, I did have one of my consulting customers in Las Vegas contact me a week after the visit, and they said that in the changes they implemented just from my being there the one day it already paid they saved so much money it paid for all my me coming out my consulting fee travel and everything for what they saved it was such a huge money saver for them and that's what i'm trying to do um is have a good program but yet be cost effective and you know for me environments uh, the environmental issues is the same thing my goal is to reduce pesticide use I don't want people to be exposed to them, and I don't want more pesticides in the environment. Absolutely. You know, if you're hiring a consultant for anything, uh, they need to be able to provide value, and you have to be aware of what that value is prior to ever having them out. I've had people that want me to come out and see their facility, and, you know, a lot of times I'll be like, hey, you know, maybe a Zoom call would be better. Uh, maybe I'm not the right person for what you're looking for. Um, but, you know, like in your case, if you step into a facility, a lot of times you'll see things that they might not be able to put in a call or an email and you'd be like, oh my gosh, you know, hey, you're storing this product wrong or, oh geez, you need to have a, a some sort of, uh, you know, IPM protocol for going into this room that you, you don't have established right now. Um, these little things can save thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the scale. And so um, that's where a consultant can make a big difference and getting the right consultant because there's no... There's no list of consultants out there in the cannabis industry and there's no ratings. It's really, um, it, it's really your job as the grower to go out there and vet them and make sure you're getting the right person for what you want. Absolutely. Being on, on, on site is critical because you're absolutely right. Um, and again, I, I, if you call me and ask me about disease, you know, my answer is it doesn't have six or eight legs. I don't deal with it. But Tad, you know, from knowing me, if I don't know about it, I know who does. And I'll get you connected with the right person that does know about that area of specialty that can help you then. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the biggest thing. And that's one thing I'm very grateful for too, is like that network of people, because if it relates to insects, I know I can get a hold of you. If it relates to, you know, pathology or disease, I can talk to you. I could talk to Chris Hayes over at BioWorks. You know, there's, there's, there's uh, Dr. Greenhouse, Nadia, who's just amazing when it comes to airflow and things like that. So, you know, having the network is almost more important than your own personal knowledge in a lot of cases um, when it comes to consulting, I found, or just being able to find answers for questions. Right. Well, and this is an advantage to me being like an old person because I've only ever worked in the horticultural industry. Again, I've got almost over 30 years in the industry. My husband's been in the industry even longer than I have. And between my husband and myself, I think we all know almost everybody in the industry. And if I don't know the specialist, he knows the specialist. So again, I, I, I have no problem passing people on to get the right people. And, you know, it's like, a, even if like a eggplant person honestly calls me and they're like, Hey, we have a commercial eggplant production greenhouse. I'm going to pass them on to a vegetable specialist for greenhouse. Cause I try to stay out of vegetable production for pest management. I know my areas and I know when to hand them off. You cannot be a master of all. I think that's a great, uh, that's a great way to end the podcast since we're already going a little long. I know you and I love to chat anyway. So uh, <laughs> for the sake of the listeners, let's, uh, let's call it a day. And I uh, hope to stay in touch with you and, and get you back on here again soon. Well, thank you very much for Tad having me. It is always a pleasure. I love talking with you. Um, and I appreciate you giving me a platform to get my message out there. Absolutely. All right. Have a wonderful rest of the day and I will talk to you soon. Right, thanks. All right. That was Suzanne Wainwright Evans, also known as the Bug Lady with Bug Lady Consulting. And you are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. Don't forget to check out the podcast page at www kisorganics.com for links to the websites and topics we covered in the podcast. Just click on the learn tab, then podcast. Also, if you haven't already, please take a moment and leave us a comment or review on whatever platform you listen on. I do take the time to read them all and appreciate the feedback. You can also follow us on Instagram at kisorganics to stay up to date on the latest podcast releases and information. Thanks for listening.